And welcome to another episode of Free From Feminism. We are extremely delighted to have Jennifer Bryson on with us today to share her conversion story to Catholicism and out of feminism. So, Jennifer, thank you for coming on with us, and we're just so excited to talk to you. Great, and I've uh, really enjoyed following and learning about your podcast and uh, I came across it at a time when I was doing a lot of deep soul searching and realizing that I'd been influenced by feminism in ways I wasn't even conscious of. So I was really having to search deeply to find these influences I wasn't even thinking of. And uh, your podcast helped me feel like I wasn't alone in this. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it helps to know we're not alone ourselves. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I will, I will add my, uh, my thank you for being on today. And you are our inaugural interview for this, uh, new conversion series. And we're just really thrilled because, um, I've, I've read your bio several times now because it's just so incredibly astonishing. Um, you, you know, I'm, I'm so excited to hear more about it, but, um, just from perusing it, it's, it goes from academia to DOD and then to Yemen, I think. Yeah. So I, we're just super fascinated, and um, I know everyone else will be to listen to your story. So tell us, tell us what you want, um, and um, just. Well, let me explain a little bit, just a shortened version of how I came into the Catholic Church. And then how um, eventually that is what led me out of feminism. Um, so, and it's just been an incredibly, it's really been in the true sense liberating, um, whereas feminism never was. So I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, my parents are both from Montana, but they'd moved to California when my mother was pregnant with me. So my entire childhood influence was this San Francisco Bay Area, uh, super, super liberal. And what I realize now only in retrospect is that feminism was just simply in the air and in the water. We, nobody talked to us about being feminists, but the assumptions of feminism informed my public school education, the activities, you know, the role models I was presented with. And uh, during my childhood, my mother took us to a Lutheran church, but it never really took root. I got in trouble for asking questions in Sunday school, and I just thought it was ridiculous. Um, and also, it was a mainline Lutheran church that had felt like it was in many ways fading. You know, there was there was just wasn't a real substantive there there. Um, fortunately though, in high school, we had an amazing youth pastor, um, who really witnessed to me, there was something amazing going on in his life. And I thought, so I'm going to have to find out what that is. But as a rebellious teenager, it didn't occur to me that it had anything to do with religion. Um, next, I, uh, my junior year of high school, I studied in Austria for a year and I was suddenly in a Catholic country and I didn't know anything about Catholics. I didn't. I had a lot of negative Catholic views, but on my first day in Austria, we went to an open air mass in Vienna with um, then Pope John Paul II. Um, so wow. 
an amazing first experience, um, but I was really horrified by these crucifixes that they handed out because I was used to seeing a cross with no body on it. And I, it was shocking to me, but for reasons I've never understood, and I really think it was the Holy Spirit, I've kept that crucifix and it now hangs on my wall at home. Oh, wow. um, so throughout my year in Austria, attending a high school there and living with Austrian families, um, I had almost no exposure to the church other than I knew that we sure got a lot of holidays because every time there was a saint's feast day for a locality, we had a holiday from school. <laughs> so I didn't know what the saints were, except that it meant we had a lot of holidays. Like if the town, you know, is the patron saint, we had a holiday. If it was the county patron saint, we had a holiday. If it was the province patron saint, we had a holiday. And then at the end of the year, my host brother took uh, me to Rome. Uh, and I went to St. Peter's, saw somebody kissing a statue, and it just confirmed for me, oh, these Catholics, they're pagans. I wanted nothing to do with them. I went off to college, to Stanford. And at which point I was a, a person of no religion at all, what today we would call a nun. Um, I, it didn't mean that I was atheist or agnostic. I just had never really thought about it. And I just knew that I had no religion. And there was a certain pride at Stanford in not having anything to do with religion. And then my sophomore year of college, God had other plans for me. I spent my sophomore year of college studying in East Germany. I studied Marxism-Leninism for a year in Leipzig at the Karl Marx University. And it's really important for Americans to understand that Marxism there was really a philosophical worldview. It was a set of claims about reality. Marxism was not an economic system. And so in the university curriculum, they required a whole year of philosophy before you ever studied economics or politics. And I was fascinated by the philosophy class because I'd never heard these ideas before. And we studied materialist philosophy that claimed physical matters, the primary thing in existence. Matter comes before any ideas or anything abstract. Uh, and we studied ancient Greek materialists and then went straight uh, to the modern era almost and studied Feuerbach and Marx, Engels, Lenin. And then we got to atheism. And that was probably about six weeks or so into the course. I've got to go back and look at my notes to figure out when this happened. And when we were studying atheism, I was sitting in the Karl Marx University reading room, reading uh, uh, an essay by Lenin on why atheism is a sine qua non. Atheism is essential to have Marx, uh, to have Marxism. And I had an experience of God. The only way I can describe it. In an instant, I knew, I encountered God and experienced God as my creator and realized that I'm created, all the people around me are created, this world is created, and that we're living in relationship to God who, as creator, is so much bigger than everything we could ever imagine. And I remember that day walking home from the library, being aware of the trees I saw in the sky and realizing wow, this is all created, and I get to be part of this. Amazing. Wow. And I've never looked back since then. And accompanying me that year, my best friends were the Polish students in East Germany, and they had so much faith. I was still pretty anti-Catholic, but 
they just radiated joy, peace. Um, they were intellectually serious about taking apart Marxism because it was false. Um, and so fast forward a year and a half later between my junior and senior years of college through evangelical Christian friends at Stanford, I became a Christian. Um, and I knew that what I was experiencing in finally figuring, starting to figure out how Jesus fit into this God experience I had, that this uh, could not be untangled from what was going on in the lives of my Polish friends. Hmm. And also, when I went to college, now we're going to start to get into the feminism intersecting with this. Uh, I was very pro-abortion. Um, uh, the only thing I knew at the time was that I was supposed to pursue a career. And the idea of getting pregnant was an incredible threat. Um, and I uh, was adamant that we had to have access to abortion because I thought if I ever got you know, pregnant, um, of course, I would have to have an abortion because it would get in the way of my career. And I think there's a lot of young women who think that way, um, maybe like me. I, I just had never thought about what an abortion was. And it was becoming a Christian and extending this understanding of us being created that made me see that abortion destroys something that God has created. And it also really made me start questioning what was going on around me with women's roles because I thought abortion is a complete disaster for women. Abortion on a college campus is creating a situation where the men think they can sleep around with no consequences. Um, abortion, I saw ways it was turning women into sexual objects. Um, and so it was then through pro-life work um, over the next year that I started to meet more and more Catholics, um, overcame a whole bunch of hurdles in my head. And then in uh, 1990, um, while I was doing a master's degree at Yale, studying medieval intellectual history from St. Augustine to Thomas Aquinas with a focus on the philosophy of creation, I came into the Catholic Church. Wow. But it would be another 30 years almost before I think another major dam in my faith life broke. And that was finally figuring out the role of Mary in the church. She changes everything, doesn't she? Um, for me, for me, it really was a dam breaking, and um, something that I haven't admitted um, before, but really just happened finally in the last you know year or so, as I've had this welcoming of Mary into my life, is my confirmation name was Mary, and I never admitted to anybody for 30 years that that was my confirmation name because I was embarrassed by it. That is wow. shocking to me now. But I, when I went to RCIA, nobody told us that we were supposed to choose a saint's name. And so it was the day, um, it was Saturday before confirmation that night, and we were at the church for some rehearsals and preparation. And they asked me, you know, who my, um, you know, patron saint would be for confirmation, my confirmation name. And I had no idea what they were talking about. And a friend who had traveled up to, um, New Haven, Connecticut for the confirmation, who was a very devout cradle Catholic with joy and enthusiasm. He said, Mary, of course, Mary. And I was annoyed 
because I associated Mary with something saccharine, with all these people talking all the time about Mary in ways I didn't understand. But it was so kind that my friends had traveled all this way and my friend was so happy about this. And I didn't understand what this name was that I was choosing that I was like, yeah, fine, Mary. And then I never told anybody. Um, and I really think it was the Holy Spirit working and pointing me in a direction that I would eventually need to go, but it would take many years. And I uh, really think that it's feminism that kept me away from Mary. Uh, so let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, so I did not consider myself a feminist, uh, especially because I had had, you know, this 180 degree change in my views on abortion already while I was an undergraduate. Um, I, you know, associated myself with being separate from the feminists. Um, already, I mean, and I remember in 1990 in the Yale Daily News, I even wrote a very controversial article arguing that an all-male secret society on campus called Skull and Bones should be allowed to remain all-male if they wanted. And so, again, I saw myself as being distanced from the feminists. But... As the decades go on um, and as I started to reevaluate my life after some, you know, a big, some personal challenges that happened in the past few years. And also I'm in my early 50s now. And I looked back on well, what on earth was I doing with my life that was focused only on career, career, career. I realized there were all of these feminist assumptions about what a woman is that were shaping my thinking. Um, that uh, she needs to be in the workplace. We need to be striving for, you know, 50% women and 50% men in all these different fields. Um, you know, that when women are excluded, it must be because men, uh, you know, have bad attitudes to women. And as I started to question all these assumptions, I realized how false many of them were. Um, also, through male friendships, I had come to realize more and more that some of my male friends were suffering and they were being treated unfairly. They were being looked down on, um, including in situations where they were the chivalrous knights, you know, who 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 came in and were, you know, supporting women and creating a great workplace. Um, so there were all of these assumptions that I started to question. And then I also, through that, then began reading more and more and more about the history of feminism um, to try to understand what this was and where it had come from. And also in the past few years, I've gotten more and more involved in work to support marriage in society. And as I've come to see how the breakdown of marriage and family has been nothing but unending devastation. Um it kept leading me also back to reading and studying more and more about feminism's very active attempt to take apart the family. Um, and uh, I finally then also, you know, had to take the step of no longer thinking like in the 1990s, I thought, well, maybe you could be a pro-life feminist. Like maybe we could expand the pro-life movement by talking about a pro-life feminism because feminism is popular, you know, so maybe if we call it pro-life feminism, if you're just simply pro-woman, that, you know, more people would be interested in pro-life. But I really, I realize that the, I think it's a contradiction of terms. 
um, and that it's really only going to be shining a light on some of the dark places philosophically that feminism comes from, um, that we're going to be able to have a culture of life. Um, also, you know, things that I had to you know, deal with in my own mind is I've had tremendous educational and professional opportunities. Um, I went to Stanford as an undergrad. I have a master's degree from Yale in history, and I also have a PhD from Yale in Arabic and Islamic studies. Um, I've gotten to work for the Department of Defense, and, uh, you know, I've worked in embassies overseas in Egypt and Yemen, and had I've been at several think tanks. So I've had all of these wonderful opportunities that never would have been possible before feminism. So I had to then think, well, is rejecting feminism, am I saying that, oh, no, women should all be, like, locked up at home and never have any education? And that's where my Catholic faith um came in and I, you know, realized, look, we, we need to look at these things through virtues. You know, what does it mean to be a virtuous human being? We need to look at these questions through vocation. What does it mean to live a life for God? And also we have concepts within the Catholic tradition, such as justice, um, um, human dignity, that could help us see that there, there are arguments to be made for women having access to educational opportunities as it fits their vocation. Um, that there are ways to argue for a basic human decency without the radical um, male-female clash and revolutionary liberation uh, that's involved in this sort of unending um quest of feminism and unending. I mean, we're seeing along the way um, also that I think it's brought us transgenderism. And I've been involved in a women's alliance against transgenderism and have had opportunities to read and learn a fair bit about where this transgenderism movement has come from. And um, I view it very much as an outgrowth of feminism because feminism wanted to, along with a set of other modern ideologies, just rip the lid off. And there's no defined endpoint. Um, and there's also no deep rooting in an, a, a proper understanding of what a human being is. Um, and so identifying, separating myself from feminism and identifying ways to detox, as you guys say. I really like that phrase when I came across it in your podcast. Um, has not only changed some of my views, but it's yielded tremendous fruit. Um, in my spiritual life, I've really experienced a sort of renaissance in my Catholic faith um, through this process. And especially in the past year, have been going through an amazing discovery process of Mary. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just it's just been blessing after blessing. So you became a Catholic in 1990. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you mentioned that you sort of hopped on board that pro-life feminist movement. But you would have been in the heart of the JP2 movement where he gave, you know, his letters to women's speech in what, 95, 96 or something. 95. And they started to I don't even know if the whole John Paul II new feminism thing had come out at that time or if that's just something that's developed from modern times. They, you know, went back to his letter Um were you ever drawn to that or uh, sort of on top of that, 
uh, I remember when I was in college, I kept thinking, you know, I was putting God first by saying something like, oh, I'd like to get married one day if that's what God calls me to. Or maybe he'll call me to religious life. I don't know. You know, we'll let, leave it up to God. But I kept saying, well, if God calls me to be a Catholic engineer, then so be it. Like, I could just do that. Like, it was my backup plan, but yet I was actively pursuing my career instead. So I wonder, because I usually see that from people who latch on to the whole John Paul II um, philosophy, if, if that was even what he meant, that, you know, you're just doing God's work right now because you are working for the Department of Defense. Think of all the good you are bringing about. Um, so could could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Let me uh, talk about the 1990s and um, some of the writings of John Paul II and then okay. um, address how I looked at, you know, career and calling. So in the mid-1990s, I was working on my PhD at Yale. So I was, um, my time was consumed by the PhD program. It was a very, very intensive program. And so I remember hearing from time to time about these writings coming out and people I really respected uh, mentioning them and speaking highly of them. So I was interested and I was curious, but it wasn't something that I pursued further. And also, I didn't start hearing people trying to use his name to justify uh, like a new feminism until more recently when I had, in my impression, it's been some who are sort of scrambling for a last gasp to try to still use the phrase feminism. That's interesting. So there's a whole discussion going on that I wasn't very connected to. Mm. Now, as for, you know, career and like you said, well, maybe God calls me to be a Catholic engineer. Um, one of the things that was um, a positive influence was I met a lot of women who were in Opus Dei, and I'm not involved in Opus Dei, but I had a, um, an several opportunities of contact and the woman who um, actually volunteered as a tutor f um, for when I was coming into the church was um, a numerary in Opus Dei. And so the women I knew who had integrated career and their Catholic vocation had done so with making tremendous sacrifice because these women were living together in um, community and they were li living, um, you know, chaste lives. Um, you know, they, they, they weren't looking for men to get married. And so in order to, you know, the work they were doing where they had these amazing careers as Catholics, I saw that it came together with sacrifice um, and that, the alternative of just, well, I'm going to have my career and call myself a Catholic, so therefore I'll say I'm having a Catholic career, um, which I also experienced somewhat in my own life. Um, I, I never encountered that as something really deep and meaningful that I could really justify in a sense of, of calling. Um, and... Um, I have an article that I shared with you by email um, that is coming out in the next few days on career advice. And one of the things I comment on in that article, you know, is there there I, I quote another article from Crisis magazine that there is no such thing as a vocation to singleness. You know, and I, I think yeah. that if we're going to say with our careers like, oh, well, God calls me to be 
a doctor or be an engineer, you know, therefore it's okay that I'm not married and all I do is work all the time. No, that's not a vocation. You know, um, a vocation is about serving God with our whole heart and our whole lives. And the vocations that the church tradition gives us, you know, the two primary ones are marriage and religious life. And um, I, my advice to young women is you've got to sort out the vocation question first. And then what you do needs to serve one of those two things. So one of the things I think we need to ask young girls and also young boys, you know, but in our context, talking about feminism, we need to think about this with young girls, is we ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? I think we should ask them and encourage them to think, who do you want to serve? When you <laughs> That's up? amazing. Yeah. Do you want to serve God? Um, do you want to serve yourself? Do you want to serve, um, you know, a uh, feminist revolution? Because if you define who you're going to serve, that really defines north on the compass. And then you need to let everything else fall in place. You know, so there, there may be women who are called, for example, to medical missions um, and who may be gifted in the sciences. And for them, becoming nurses and doctors you know, and using their gifts in religious life, um, yes, there may be a role for that. So I don't have fast and hard rules about, you know, careers women should and shouldn't pursue. My emphasis and what I've really been learning in my own heart, and I wish um, somebody had helped me understand 30 years ago, I think advice we give is often the advice we wish we'd heard, um, is to sort out the vocation question first. But I think feminism is really getting in the way of women's vocations in the modern world because feminism focuses so much on what women are going to do and how women are going to have power. Mm -hmm. And religious life is about neither of those. You mentioned sacrifice, and I feel like that's key. That's why the vocations we have are these vocations because – Sure, you might say, well, there's an element of sacrifice in being a doctor. I'm sacrificing my time and my talent or something, but it's not the same. You're not permanently sacrificing. You've not made a vow of some sort to God that you will be doing this. It's just who's employing you right now and what your career is. Um, but I love it. I was reading about that recently. I love what you said, too, on, you know, God could call women to these other things, but it's not, it's, you have to put vocation first. Yeah. It's, it's all in context of vocation because otherwise you are serving yourself. Me saying back in the day, I could be a Catholic engineer as humble as it might've made me feel as, you know, faith filled. It's, it, I, I slowly discovered it wasn't true because I was really just focusing on what I wanted at the time rather than who am I? What has God called me to be? And then where is God directing my talents in regards to this vocation? Yeah. And also, you know, the greatest commandment is to love. We need to love God mm-hmm. and love our neighbor. And um, one of the things I've just come to see in you know recent years that made me further question feminism is the way we love is, um, you know, one to one. God is, has, you know, outsourced this love, for example, to um, the sacrament of marriage that God gives us. 
um, creates an opportunity for more and more people to have one person that they are loved by and one person who is their partner in that school for love, for learning to love. And also in religious life, people need to learn, you know, um, to love those with whom they're in immediate community, which at times can be very difficult. Love doesn't happen in vague, you know, oh, all of humanity or, you know, the United Nations will bring love to the world. And so that because love is a primary commandment and I kept seeing ways that the structures of vocation the church has given us serve as channels of love and schools for us to learn to love, I realize that that's completely different from confusing calling with career. Mm-hmm. You know, your, your calling, your vocation isn't to, to do a certain profession. It's to serve God, mm-hmm. you know, and to love others. And then within that, there are ways that we can be good stewards of our talents and our educational opportunities within the context of vocation. You know, when you think about it, a lot of feminism, um, and I guess this is one aspect of it, reduces women to utilitarian. You are worthy only by fulfilling your career. You're mm-hmm. only worth something if you decide to, you know, run for the Senate or, you know, become that CEO or work 80 hours a week, you know, and, and have the 2.5 children and lean in. It's reducing the beautiful concept of woman down to what are you going to do? Exactly what you just said, obviously. Um, and maybe in our next interview, I would love, love, love to talk about what you think about that with regards to Marxist Leninism and, um, how feminism ties in with that. But my question, I am so anxious to hear. You said that your conversion to Catholicism, um, happened 20 years before your kind of, um, I forgot the word you used, but your epiphany about our lady. So I would love to hear more about that specifically with regards to feminism. What about her, what happened, what event happened that made that light turn on for you? So even unbelievably, it was actually almost 30 years um, that it took, you know, I, Catholicism is very different in many ways than the various Protestant traditions. And in the Protestant traditions I'd been exposed to, having gone to a mainline uh, Lutheran church growing up, having become a Christian through evangelical circles, um, Mary was either never mentioned or there was a very, even almost explicit sort of anti-Mary animus um, because Mary was so Catholic. So... I became a Catholic coming from a background where Mary just didn't really make sense. And so the devotions to Mary, the language about Mary, I found just so strange and even alienating. Um, And then, uh, you know, if I can fast forward through the years, my life um, was very focused on my education and my career. um, And I, uh, uh, wanted to marry, um, 
um, and was interested in religious life for a while, but you know those weren't the doors that opened. And I have this unquestioned assumption that you know career is is who I am. You know, when people ask what do you do, you know, it was my career. And so I think that that served for many many years as a distraction. Also, for many years, I had a great deal of difficulty in finding Catholic parishes. Um, I think the modern American church is very deeply wounded, and parish life can be a bit hit or miss. And so I think that in a healthy and vibrant parish, I would have been exposed to Mary in more ways. Um, I would have been exposed to the Marian feast days. But a real blessing is that there's a women's Benedictine community that I've been visiting regularly since 1995. And I spoke um, to one of the nuns there who's been somewhat my spiritual director. And this was probably about five years ago. And I admitted to her I was struggling in my faith with a set of feast days that I called the weird feast days <laughs> because they just didn't make sense to me. But because these days, I knew they were really important. And so I thought, I think this is a problem that I'm always avoiding them. And um, Mary comes in here. So it was the Feast of the Assumption, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, and then also the Feast of the Transfiguration. Um, but especially these two big Marian feast days. And I'm so thankful for the advice she gave me. She said, you should focus on those feast days you should delve into them just like go out of your way to be there for those feast days if those are the ones that don't make sense and so she didn't give me doctrine or some rational explanation she really just um you know almost held out her hand and pulled me forward she said come inside of these feast days and so when um, the Feast of the Assumption would come up, when the Feast of the Immaculate Conception would come up, which also was her birthday, which seemed important somehow, I um, would just make a point of spending extra time in prayer at Mass and just make a point of being really, really conscious of how uncomfortable I was. About, okay, God, I don't understand why I'm here. I don't understand why this is a holy day of obligation, but... You know, this is important to you. So somehow I've got to figure out why this is so important to you, God. Um, and those feast days of the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption really started to work on my heart. And I started to see the just amazing beauty in the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. And also what a uh, powerful witness it was in the modern world to faith, precisely because it's so strange. Um, that it was shining a light that was so different from a dry, rationalistic world. There wasn't anything irrational about it, um, but it was in some ways what we might use the you know, uh, Greek alpha privative on the front, irrational. It was operating at a level that was just different than the rational. So those feast days really helped me. And another thing was the Catholics I looked up to, um, including some Catholic mothers of large families um, 
whom I admire tremendously and um, who graciously would sometimes invite me into their homes as a single person. And getting to be around a married couple and a family with children, you know, if you're single is really great. Um, so these Catholics I looked up to who were leading beautiful lives, Mary was always really important to them and they kept talking about Mary. And so I kept everywhere I turned that was really wonderful and good and rich, Mary was right there in the middle, <laughs> even though I was still, you know, in the midst of Mary avoidance syndrome. <laughs> and so I kept thinking like, well, I respect these people so much and Mary's important to them. So this Mary thing, you know, can't be just something like weird. Um, <laughs> and so I kept thinking, well, I've got to like, I guess I need to like listen and find out what this is. And then the real dam broke for me. Um, over the past year through my discovery of a mid-20th century Austrian Catholic woman who uh, was a prolific writer named Ida Friederike Gores. She's barely known in English, um, but since I read German, I've been reading through her works in German. And she was a woman of very deep faith. Um, she was, I, I, you know, very traditionalist, conservative Catholic um, some of her essays uh, with the unfolding of modernity and the sexual revolution, she, um, you know, she challenged contraception. Um, she was very pro-life. And uh, she's just a fabulous, amazing author. She had spent much of her life in lay ministry, especially with um, girls and women. So she through the depth of her faith and also her interaction with so many girls and women, her writings on family life, womanhood are, are just, for me, um, have been so moving. Well, lo and behold, I'm sure you're going to be surprised. Guess who she had a really deep devotion to? Our Blessed Mother. <laughs> and so here is this woman who, you know, just spoke to me at every level and my faith life was really coming back together again and she was articulating um things that uh i felt frustrated with and concerned about in the modern world and she just has these piercing insights and it was so obvious to me that mary was very central in her life and also um the archangel michael um you know, was another one that like I wasn't sure about. That was one of those Catholic things that I hadn't quite made sense of. Um, so really through reading her works, I finally had to just submit to God that, all right, God, if the most amazing Catholics I know all keep saying, um, you know, that they're th thrilled to get to have Mary's role model and Mary's intercession in their lives, um, it, it really it was like a dam just broke and then the water started uh, flowing and it helped me understand being a woman um, in new ways. Um, and because this is relatively new to me in my spiritual life now, you know, I'm playing catch up. Uh, Tan Books has um, a set of devotionals that I highly recommend. It's a I think it's called With Mary Through the Year and it is writings on uh, from various um, saints and other great Catholic writers about Mary, like one page a day. Uh, that's just been a tremendous uh, enrichment and great resource. 
Um, the German or Austrian author you were speaking of, are any of her works in English at this time? So she wrote A Life of St. Therese that is available from Ignatius Press. Um, uh, she wrote several, hagiography was one of her main areas of work. And then I have translated two short books by her on marriage, um, one of oh, which wow. advice to young women. Um, and so those, uh, I hope, will come out in 2021. Um, okay. And just this month, um, I have a publication coming out that's a lecture she gave in 1970 called Trusting the Church, in which she was speaking to German Catholics who were shocked, um, I think somewhat traumatized by the chaos after Vatican II. And what does it mean in that situation to trust the church? Oh, um, my word. And so I'm excited to share her lecture. So that um, comes out in about a week. And also with that translation, um, the priest who gave her eulogy at her death in 1971 was at the time Father Joseph Ratzinger, who later became Pope Benedict XVI. Uh, oh, and so I, uh, in the translation, also have that eulogy. And, um, you know, I, I also want to mention that as a single Catholic woman, I've realized, okay, I have time available, and I've kept trying to ask God, God, how can I use this time for you? Um, and so I'm hoping that these translations that I've been doing, um, that I've both been doing on the side, not so much as part of my job, um, is maybe something, a way I can offer, you know, the relative time I have available as a single person to try to uh, live fruitfully. And that word fruitfully, I want to mention here, uh, something that's been helpful to me in this process of detoxing from feminism and opening my heart to Mary. Um, I have a lot of respect for the work that Dr. Carrie Gress has been doing, and she was on your show. Um, and yes, she, Noel. Great. Yeah. And in, she and Noelle Maring have a new book coming out in October. It's the second volume of Theology of the Home. So it's right, Theology right. of the Home 2. And in that, they focus on um, giving ways for women to look at living lives um, that are fruitful instead of focusing on trying to live lives that are powerful. And mm. so I really think the work that Noelle Maring and Carrie Gress are doing to help rethink modern womanhood um, is just a great resource. Okay. Um, well, when those books are published or those publications you've translated are out, please let us know because we will promote them and read them for one. <laughs> That's and Thank you for doing that because I mean, her name Absolutely. is not known. I mean, otherwise mm -hmm. we wouldn't, unless you speak German, you're not going to read these or yeah. even be exposed to her name, you know? So thank you. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, for those of us, you know, in the year 2020, who are now questioning feminism and trying to make sense of, you know, what is the alternative? We're really blessed to have some of these female Catholic writers from the early to mid 20th century um, who really came of age before the 19, the craziness of the 1960s. Um, Alice von Hildebrand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think I, you know, also Itagoras up there. And I think that that generation of women has a lot that we can learn from. 
Yeah, I know the Catholic feminists always have their role models, which they use like, you know, St. Joan of Arc and, you know, St. Gianna and stuff, which we don't believe they were in that camp. But I feel like I want to start like the Catholic anti-feminist role models and include uh, Ida and um, Alice von Hildebrand as well. And and other ones that you slowly run across just because they're their works are very powerful. I mean, at least from things I've seen, I've only heard Alice von Hildebrand a little bit, but the little bit I heard, I was, I thought to myself, who is this lady? She is amazing. Like, why have I not heard of her before? So she's brilliant. Brilliant. So, you know, our listeners are all over the place. Um, and because feminism has been in this, um, society for so long, pretty much every woman, is going to have to find yourself in the workforce at some point in time. It may only be a few months. It may be 30 years. You just don't know. Mm-hmm. And from my personal experience and then learning about feminism, it was, it's, I mean, it, even Teresa, you might feel this way too, even in your marriage, you know, like you find feminism in your life everywhere. And so everywhere. as I've been trying to learn to be less feminist, even though I never called myself that and more feminine, it was so hard in the workplace because you're around these men all the time. And sometimes you need to be a little bit more assertive or dominant and and for the sake of your job sometimes, because you need to, you need to stand up there and present this presentation and convince these people. Those aren't necessarily feminine traits. They're not bad, but they're not associated with, you know, womanhood entirely. And and, then passivity sounds bad, but you, like women are supposed to be more passive and let the men lead. And so now we have all these women in these roles. Um, so what was your, what would be your best advice for our listeners who are still uh, in the workforce? If they plan to leave the workforce, or if they were permanently be in the workforce like yourself um, and, and how to, to incorporate your femininity in there and the beautiful way that God has created you. Something that I have found really um helpful is trying to stay oriented towards looking for opportunities to have healthy, positive, constructive male-female relationships in the workplace. Um, And uh, this involves staying um, away from sexualizing the workplace, away from trying to use feminine, you know, sexiness to manipulate men. Um, It involves... um, cherishing family life and um so you know i found in the workplace that um you know with men that i work very closelyness closely with um making a point of you know uh wishing them and their families well um if i'm at social events making sure to meet their wives and make sure their wives know that they're welcome and that I don't view, I don't want a situation of creating a false underlying competitiveness with their wives. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my measures for great men in the workplace are men who speak openly and happily about their wives, because then we have clarity in our relationship that it's a professional relationship. Um, and I want them to know that I respect that they're married and I respect what their wives are doing and I respect their, their family life. Um, so that's, you know, that's one of the things I found helpful. Um, and that 
also steers away from a feminist tendency to almost look for tension because then you can blame the tension on the men. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're busy looking for ways, how can we work together fruitfully and be aware that there's going to be um, a different dynamic because we have men and women in the workplace? Um, I have found that um, helpful. And then I also um, have found that when I meet women, I make a point of asking um, what keeps you busy instead of asking what do you do? So I live in the Washington, D.C. area where almost the only thing anybody talks about all the time is work. Um, Whereas I want to foster a culture in which um, motherhood and family life are cherished and valued and honored in our culture. Um, You know, the family is this beautiful institution that God created and that we need. Um, So I've also found that um, asking women what keeps you busy opens just a broader space for women to talk about, you know, either maybe it is their job you know, and their career, or for women who are stay-at-home mothers to talk about, you know, what they're doing. And they are incredibly busy um, because being a woman in the workplace, I um, experienced over the years, sometimes there's a real tension between women who work full-time and are single mm-hmm. and you know, women who are stay-at-home moms. Mm-hmm. And that's also um, a battle I don't want to fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, And so as a career woman, I've looked for ways to try to defuse that and look for ways we can collaborate. Um, So, for example, at my parish, I taught Sunday school for two years. Um, And it was after Amoris Laetitia came out. And I know that there's problems with that document and controversies in some of the footnotes. But that document did, you know, bring to my thinking a focus on, okay, the family is a great institution. So I was looking for ways, all right, God, you're reminding us right now in the church that family is important. So what does that mean for me as a single person? Um, So, you know, I decided to teach Sunday school because I thought I have time available that parents with little kids might not have. Um, And I was also looking for ways that my life as a single person can be in fruitful relationship with um, women who are mothers with children rather than you know, a tense, competitive, you know, who, who, you know, what should you be doing and what shouldn't you be doing type discussion. I love that. I've always wondered what I should ask people because I don't want to be like, oh, what do you do as if they should be doing something or also focusing too much on the career or being like, do you stay home and focusing like, you know, make them feel like, oh, well, we can't, we're really trying to or, or something. And, it's just what keeps you busy really just encompasses it all. Um, and I love how you said in embracing um, what you can do with where God has put you in your life at this time, you know, uh, being able to help out with Sunday school. That's that's great. It is. It's I'm so glad you asked that question, Beth, because um, I was in this position uh, just until, you know, two years ago of of being single just like you just said, and, you know, being Catholic, seeing all these very large families come along and not knowing where my place was, was very, it's, it's hard. And, um, 
But I think there's going to be, and there is a very large community of, of, of single people in the Catholic church right now, especially Catholic women, because we have bought into the feminist ideology, both men and women, to be honest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And our culture has experienced a breakdown of, of marriage and family in many, many ways. Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. but. Yeah, it is. So I think um, in in a way we I think we as a church, maybe need to get a little bit better about single ministry, you know, to, as you said earlier, you know, kind of push people into, OK, the two vocations, which one would you like kind of thing, <laughs> but also just to be with them where they are. Mm hmm. And love them where they are. And um, I, at least, like you said, each parish is so different. So maybe it was just my parish. I, I did not um, experience much of that. So I mean, that's, that's something that we can improve on. Yeah. And, and I think it, you know, this, this possibility now of really questioning feminism and looking at, at ways that it's influenced us that sometimes we aren't even aware of, it's also going to have an impact on evangelization. Mm. Um, you know, that we're, I, I, I think we're, you know, the, the Catholic faith offers something so radically different than what feminism has offered to women. Um, that the more we can understand what feminism has done, how it has warped, um, some aspects in our society and also the more we can understand ways that it has shaped thinking, including, as I said, when people aren't even aware of how much it's shaped their thinking. Mm -hmm. um, as we do that, I think we're going to find new opportunities also for sharing the gospel. Absolutely. Um, well, what do you think? Um, Jennifer, do you want to end it here? And then maybe just um, we can we can do a part two with you and go more into the ideology and and uh, specifics about your your background. Sure. That sounds great. Um, and I send you encouragement um, and I look forward to encountering others in this community of, of women who are stepping away from feminism um, and toward Mary. Yes. So thank you. And listeners, Amen. you heard it. She did it all in the feminist world from pro-abortion, Stanford, San Francisco area, all the way to Catholicism in here. I mean, if you if you know it's wrong, you you'd be the person to know it's wrong because you lived it all and your story is beautiful. So thank you for sharing it. Thank you for this opportunity. We'll look forward to talking with you again. Great. And I'll be listening to your podcast. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for joining us once again. Uh, find us on Twitter at, at @freedfeminism or send us an email at freedfromfeminism at gmail.com. And we will be back next time with a new episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Bye-bye.